of Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> We're now in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We'll be looking at this whole chapter. I think we might have about, maybe about four or five more um, lessons on this book as we go through um, Old Testament exposition in the evening. So um, I'm going to read this chapter for context and then we'll get into it. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Who is like the wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines his face and causes his stern face to beam. I say, keep the command of the king because of the sworn oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to go from his presence. Do not stand in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is powerful, who will say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no evil thing, for a wise heart knows the proper time and custom. For there is a proper time and custom for every matter, though a man's trouble is multiplied upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? There is no man who has power to restrain the wind with the wind, and there is none who has power over the day of death, and there is no discharge in the time of war. And wickedness will not provide escape to its masters. All this I have seen and given my heart to every work that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has power over another man to his calamity. So then, I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place. And they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed quickly, Therefore, the, sons, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may prolong his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the wicked man, and he will not prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God openly. There is vanity which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the works of the wicked. On the other hand, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the works of the righteous. I say that this too is vanity. So I log gladness, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. And this will join with him in his labor throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the endeavor which has been done on the earth, even though one never sees sleep with his eyes day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot find out the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not find it out. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot find it out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at these words and consider the things which Solomon was reflecting upon, life lived under the sun, different events and circumstances and seasons of life, Lord, help us to glean wisdom. Help us to apply that wisdom to our own circumstances, to our own lives, that we may walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called to, that we may glorify you in all that we think, say, and do. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. As we've been going through this book in the evening, and as I've said before, and and many have said, um, that they believe that Ecclesiastes is, in in a sense, uh, Solomon's repentance, or it's definitely um, written towards the end of his life as he reflects upon his life and life itself. And as we see this uh, phrase throughout the book um, of Ecclesiastes, uh, life lived under the sun. And he's talking about life lived in a sin-cursed world, in a fallen world. And uh, he sees, uh, he records his, um, in a sense, his search for the meaning and purpose of life, uh, what is best in life, um, and uh, we see he um, records his search into all the different 
vices of mankind, the different um, ways in which man seeks pleasure or glory or fulfillment. And we get this phrase, vanity of vanity, over and over again, vanity. And as we come to this chapter, he considers uh, wisdom. And we see principles of wisdom all throughout this. But we also see it in the context of uh, the king, the commands of the king, or uh, in the context of government. Um, And we see the king mentioned, or a king. But then we also see, um, in a sense, I I see in the second half that he alludes to... uh, Uh, God's kingship or God's government, God's governing of the world and uh, the ways of the world. And there's, um, as with most of Ecclesiastes, um, many pastors and theologians, they have a hard time outlining this book. And and it just seems to go into cycles and one thing after another. It's it's similar to Proverbs. But I do see this chapter, it, it does have some sort of form. In uh, verse 1, he asks a question. It's somewhat of a rhetorical question. And then there's a supposed answer. He asks the question, who is like the wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a matter? And then he almost answers it himself. And then he'll go with that theme, continue with that theme about um, principles of wisdom and different uh, situations and circumstances in which we should apply wisdom. So we see uh, verse 1 and then the verses 2 to 16, um, the reflections on the question and answers. He has a rhetorical question and the supposed answer concerning wisdom and the wise man and how he navigates life, and then the reflections on that question and the answers. And then in verse 17, he ends with the conclusion and a sure answer. And in this passage, um, we can see really uh, six themes that come out. Solomon reflects upon six themes concerning wisdom and life lived under the sun, or or six, um, I guess, situations in which we apply wisdom or we see wisdom. And so we'll, we'll look at it in, in that fashion. Six themes um, concerning wisdom and life lived under the sun. <clears throat> the first theme being wisdom and its benefits. Wisdom and its benefits. Verse 1, who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter. A, wis- a man's wisdom illumines his face and causes his stern face to beam. He... he um, poses this question, then he, in a sense, gives an answer, a, a general statements concerning wisdom and its benefits. And first, we see that wisdom, it sets apart the wise. It sets apart the wise. He says, who is like the wise man? And this is almost um, uh, following off of the last few verses of chapter 7, when he, he talks about... Um, Finding a person. Uh, I have found one man out of a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. And not, um, in a sense, uh, saying anything uh, negative, so to speak, about women, um, but more along the lines of, uh, as we saw last time, that the women he was surrounded by, he, you know, he he never saw one saw one that was wise, that understood, and then even amongst men, one out of a thousand. It's just showing the rarity of wisdom and understanding um, how to navigate uh, life in a sin-cursed world. And then he poses question, verse 1, who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter? He talks about wisdom and its benefits, that it sets apart the wise, that they're set apart from the rest of humanity as a wise man or a wise person, as one who has an answer, one who knows what's going on in the world, one who sees where things are headed. We can think of people, maybe not 
particularly uh, a certain person, but you, you know those people in your life that you've come across who have, um, everybody else has been perplexed about a matter, whether it's in the workplace or in society or in the neighborhood or in the family. And there's one, a wise person, who knows the answer, who knows the way ahead, who knows what's going on, who sees where things are headed. You know, you, you think about um, sometimes uh, these people that, that they'll look at society and they'll look at politics, they'll look at the events uh, that are going on and they'll say, this is, this is what's happening, this is what's going on, this is what's going to happen. And most of the people are like, eh, I, don't, I think you're crazy, I don't know. And then it turns out and the, the man almost seems like a prophet. And it's just the, the sense of wisdom that it sets apart the wise man. It sets them apart as one who has answers. It, it also sets them apart as one who is dignified, who is respected, who is sought after. You know, we, we think, and even Proverbs alludes to this. There's certain Proverbs that talks about the gray-haired um, to give them honor, to give them respect, the elder, to give them respect. And, and there's something that um, is presumed with age. It, it, it's presumed that with age you will grow in wisdom. And you should. You should. Um, you know, uh, the old wise man. Um, it's typically, wisdom is typically found with the, the um, old or with the gray-haired, with those who have been around the block, so to speak, have life experience. Um, is typically not found with the young. You know, we, we, we can see an old wise man and, and it it's, shouldn't be a shock to us. We see a young foolish person, that's usually not a shock to us. But there is a tragedy and that's when you see an old foolish person. It's sad. It's someone who is in their, possibly in their 60s or 70s, and they're just a fool. Acting like a fool, going around, just showing off their foolishness. They're like, you know, a teenager. Conversely, you know, once in a while, we have the surprising delight of coming across a young wise person as wise beyond their years. And this is, in a sense, why um, Solomon wrote the Proverbs, to train up young men and women to be wise, um, young men and women who could um, serve um, in the king's court. This is uh, the picture of Daniel. Uh, wisdom sets apart the wise. But wisdom also, it brings peace and joy to life. As we see at the second half of verse 1, he kind of answers his question. A man's wisdom illumines his face and causes his stern face to beam. There's a sense that wisdom diminishes and it can even cure our fears, our anxieties, and our worries. That if we have wisdom and we apply wisdom to the situations, to the circumstances of life, um, we won't be um, trapped or um, fall into calamity or disaster. Uh, there's a proverb that says, uh, the, the prudent see evil coming and hide themselves from it. And so wisdom brings peace and joy in it, it in applying it that... You know, you're not anxious, you're not fearful, because you know what's going on. You know how to react. You know how to respond. Wisdom makes relationships, interactions, and life in general better. And so Solomon begins this section of Ecclesiastes, this chapter, um, posing this question and then showing us wisdom and its benefits. It's interesting in, <coughs> in Proverbs chapter 4, as he is explaining um, why he wrote the Proverbs and the benefits of wisdom, um, Solomon writes this, the beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom, or some translations, get wisdom. That's the beginning of wisdom, is to get it, to understand its value. 
And he goes on, he says, And with all your acquiring, acquire understanding. Prize her and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will give for your head a garland of grace. She will present you with a crown of beauty. Hear my son and receive my sayings and the years of your life will be many. I have instructed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright tracks. When you walk, your steps will not be impeded. And if you run, you will not stumble. Seize discipline. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. And so he begins this chapter, as most of Proverbs, explaining uh, the benefits of wisdom. Wisdom and its benefits and how it benefits the wise man. How it illumines his face causes his stern face to beam and this is important in the context of all of ecclesiastes because over and over again he talks about just the vanity of vanities and life lived under the sun and here he commends wisdom but then he will go on and show us some other themes concerning wisdom the second being wisdom and the king verse 2 to 6 i say keep the command of the king because of the sworn oath before god Do not be in a hurry to go from his presence. Do not stand in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is powerful, who will say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no evil thing, for a wise heart knows the proper time and custom. For there is a proper time and custom for every matter, though a man's trouble is multiplied upon him. He's talking about wisdom and the king or wisdom and government. How how to act wisely um, in relationship to government, in relationship to a king, in relationship to a ruler. Or even you could take the application of um, a person in authority over you, a superior, a boss. And first, uh, the first um, lesson he gives concerning wisdom in government or wisdom in the king is to obey and honor the king. Obey and honor him because he is the king. And we don't see this as much in our day and age. It's still, um, there's still application for us. But especially in Solomon's time, up until about maybe 300 years ago, um, most governments were monarchies. They were, they were kingdoms, and, and kings wielded power. They wielded great power. And they could do, um, they could make one's life either miserable or destroy them or execute them or destroy their whole family. And so Solomon begins with uh, obey the king, honor him. Recognize his place in God's creative order. That God has established governments for a reason. He, he sets up kingdoms and kings and he, he humbles, he exalts. And so Solomon says, keep the command of the king because of the sworn oath before God. And some have, uh, you know, they elaborated on this sworn oath. What, what was Solomon talking about? Some believe that it refers to Israel's promises to serve King Solomon in 1 Chronicles 29 as he takes the throne or, or establishes his kingdom to their promises to serve him. But it wasn't just King Solomon, but almost every king in, in Israel's uh, history, uh, there was a sense where the people uh, swore an oath <clears throat> or even... Uh, you know, throughout the history of the world. The, even if there wasn't an oath, uh, you know, we, we have the Pledge of Allegiance. But um, allegiance was presumed. Whether you explicitly said it or not, it was presumed that you were the king's subjects. And, and even if you knew it or not, um, you know, most of human history did not have the benefits of the communications that we have. And so sometimes um, people would uh, live and die and, and not know much about the change of power or um, things that are happening in the kingdom, um, especially if it was a large kingdom. But nonetheless, they were subjects to the king. 
And Solomon says to obey and honor the king, to um, recognize his position, to give honor to whom honor is due, as we see in Romans chapter 13, to understand his power. To understand his power, to weigh the consequences of offending him or going against him, and to behave accordingly. He says in verse 3 and 4, Do not be in a hurry to go from his presence. Do not stand in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is powerful, who will say to him, what are you doing? And Solomon's not, he's not commenting on whether the king is doing right or, or good, or whether he's wise or foolish, or whether he's evil or righteous. He just says, recognize his position, recognize your position, and act accordingly, act wisely. Uh, I mean, we, we could think of um, <clears throat> many uh, times throughout the Bible where uh, someone, where there's a narrative, there's a scene where someone is in front of a king and they're interacting with the king. And more often than not, the king is not righteous, he's not good, he's wicked. So Solomon, he gives this principle of wisdom to obey and honor the king and to discern the times. Discern the times, verses 5 to 6. He who keeps a royal command experiences no evil thing, for a wise heart knows the proper time and custom. For there is a proper time and custom for every matter, though a man's trouble is multiplied upon him. What he's saying is, is, is there's... A way, there's a wise way and a foolish way to interact with the king. There's a way to bring your appeals to the king, up to government. There's a way to even um, confront. But we need to do it with wisdom. He's saying know the commands, customs, times, and consequences of your interactions with human government. You know, there's so many illustrations throughout history, and I, I think of one, um, because government isn't always good, and in fact, more often than not, it's evil. And um, <clears throat> we are to obey them, but obey human government, but there does come times in which we can uh, uh, disobey. And, and we can disobey in a way which honors God. We are to be wise when we do that. You think of Nazi Germany. You think of the people, they were, you know, Adolf Hitler was in charge. There was people that were, uh, all the people commanded to, you know, uh, in a sense, uh, give up the Jews. And, and what were you to do in that sense? Were you to just obey the government? How are you to go about, you know, that navigate that situation? You need to do it with wisdom. Choose your battles wisely. One commentator, he writes this. He says, kings are sinners like the rest of mankind, and they abuse their authority. The nearly unlimited power they possessed in the ancient world meant that those who had to deal directly with them required exceptional wisdom. There are wise and foolish and God-honoring ways to interact with human government. And they differ according to the times, places, and particular governments. It requires wisdom. We, we think of Nehemiah, for instance, approaching the king. He was not to have a sad face because that would, um, his demeanor would impact the king's demeanor and impact his decision-making. There's so many illustrations throughout the Bible that we can glean upon. Joseph, you know, and his interactions with Pharaoh. Uh, Moses and his interactions with Pharaoh. He, even, even though Moses was confronting Pharaoh and Pharaoh was, was evil, uh, Moses was, in a sense, still respectful. Um, David and Saul. Daniel. Nehemiah. Peter. Paul, we must obey God rather than man. Almost every one of them <laughs> shows how they um, had to, um, in a sense, confront the king, confront the ruler uh, for righteousness' sake, um, or advise the ruler. 
And there is a sense where they did it righteously. They did it in a way which honored God. They did it respectfully. But nonetheless, they were, they honored God. And they um, held fast to their integrity. But what we see is they also exercised great wisdom because they knew. It's interesting that um, Chuck Swindoll, he um, views these verses um, verses, uh, in a sense, verses 1 to 8, this first section, from a different perspective. He summarizes five characters, characteristics of a wise leader from these verses. Uh, a wise leader first has a clear mind, verse 1, uh, and a cheerful disposition, a discreet mouth, keen judgment, and a humble spirit. And that, that's the theme here of, of how do we wisely and circumspectly interact with government, with leadership, with authority figures. Solomon's third theme that he looks at as he's considering wisdom and how to apply wisdom in life lived under the sun is wisdom and life. Wisdom and life in general, verses 7 to 10. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? There is no man who has power to restrain the wind and with the wind, and there is none who has power over the day of death, and there is no discharge in the time of war, and wickedness will not provide escape to its masters. All this I have seen and given my heart to every work that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has power over another man to his calamity. So then I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus." This, too, is vanity. He's looking at, 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 generally speaking, in terms of life, a person's life. And, and there's two lessons here concerning wisdom in life. First, know your limitations. And second, know your place. Know your limitations and know your place. Verses 7 and 8, we are to understand our limitations. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? Uh, we don't have control over time or the future. Uh, we don't know what will happen um, an hour from now or a day or a week or a month. Uh, we, we have plans. We, we see what has happened in the past. We see the rhythms of life. We see our schedules and we can suppose, but we really don't know. There's also a sense that we have no control over um, creation. We're limited within time and circumstance, within creation, within even culture and society. And so Solomon's telling us uh, the same lesson that um, many of you know that um, Harry Callahan said and taught us to man's got to know his limitations. Man's got to know his limitations. But a man's also got to know his place. We've got to know our place. Verses 9 to 10. All of this I have seen and given my heart to every work that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has power over another man to his calamity. So then I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is vanity. No Know your place. Know your place as a created being. Know your place in, in terms of whether or not you have power to do good or make a change. Because sometimes you can't. Sometimes there is oppression. There is evil. And you are, in a sense, powerless to do anything, to change it. In those times we pray. We do what we can. We voice our opinions, but we also have to know our place that, you know, as much as I can jump up and down and scream and shout and, and complain, it's not going to change anything. Not going to change anything. Know your place to do good or make a change or to set the record straight or leave it to God. This verse 10, it's interesting. Um, and many have picked up on this, verse 10, uh, who it's talking about. So then I have seen the wicked buried, 
those who used to go in and out from the holy place. He's saying these are wicked who have a funeral and, and people know they're wicked, but they used to go in and out from the holy place. This is a religious, externally religious person, or at least in church, that puts on the show, puts on the front, that they're righteous, but many people know, and especially those closest to them, that they are living a double life, that outside of church, away from the pastor, away from, in this context, the priests and the prophets, they're corrupt. They're they're wicked. They're they're um, unlike um, I, they're unlike uh, any believer. They're they're just like any unbeliever. They're they're putting on a show, and, and there's a sense where you see this um, frustration from the true believers that they see almost many paint this picture of the funeral, where this person and unbeknownst to the pastor or the preacher there or even some family members they're they're just sharing all these glowing good words about this person and and many other people are saying if you only knew it's a facade but solomon says they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus meaning soon forgotten about you know they're in a sense uh, both their positive um, uh, image that they're trying to portray their influence and uh, in a sense the the truth will be found out God will judge them God will set the record straight know your place you you can't change everything you can't make every wrong right you can't um, fix every injustice I like what Dr. William Barrick, he says in his commentary concerning this section of, uh, of this chapter. He writes this, he says, Solomon offers four examples of an individual's lack of control over life. First, no one can restrain the wind with the wind. Second, no one can control the day of his or her death. Third, no soldier can discharge himself in a time of war. And fourth, wicked deeds can never deliver evildoers. All four of these illustrations add to verse 7 and expand the picture of human inability to control their circumstances. The realms include the future, climate, death, war, and salvation. All of these are outside man's control. Only God controls all of these things. Solomon talks about wisdom in life, and he tells us to, in a sense, know our limitations and know our place. Fourth, Solomon goes to wisdom and justice. Verses 11 to 13. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may prolong his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the wicked man, and he will not prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear God openly. Solomon uh, brings the theme of wisdom uh, to apply to justice, wisdom and justice, and he applies it in the sense of showing us the failures of human justice and the fact of divine justice. And we, we see this verse right here, verse 11, Ecclesiastes 8.11, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. This, this is a verse that every law enforcement officer ought to memorize. It's a verse that should be uh, placarded all over every courthouse. I, I mean, I, I wish it would be right up on the judge's bench, bench or, or right in front of the judge. Um, if... You know, if I was king for a day, I would, I, would, I would require every judge to memorize this. Because we see it. We see it. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. 
How long do people live on death row? I mean, that's just, it's like, what, what's, what's the point? What's the point? Just give them life in prison. You know, let's just stop the facade. Just give them life in prison if you're not going to execute them. Because it's just a waste. How, how often do criminals uh, or, you know, and sometimes it's just bureaucracy. Uh, you know, and just the whole judicial system. And how long someone goes through court and, until the final sentencing. Months and years sometimes. It's a failure of human justice but it's not just you know not just in terms of the judicial system or law enforcement but um the same is true in the family <laughs> you know uh, it, it not only should be this verse should not only be um, written all over in every courthouse um, but there's a sense that it should be written on the rod of discipline <laughs> because and I see this, I'm guilty of it as any other parent is. Your kid's doing something, and should I get up? Is it that bad? You know, are they're just moving right up to the, the line, dancing around the line, and it's like, and then you delay, and then you look back, and you're like, I should have whooped them. <laughs> I should have whooped them, and I should have whooped them quickly. Because the next time, they're more, they're emboldened to keep on doing it. It's just, we see the failures of human justice to deter sin and promote good, to bring retribution and fairness. Justice needs to be swift. It needs to be fair. It needs to be resolute. And the wicked, the, the, the criminal needs to know that they're being judged. And if it's done rightly, if it's done effectively, then it will deter sin. It will be a deterrent for all other criminals and all other wrongdoers. But that's not the case. And so we learn, uh, in a sense, wisdom from this. Wisdom, in a sense, in which in, when we are in the position of authority, to execute justice swiftly, fairly, but there's also a sense that when we see the failures of human justice, that we ought not to be shocked. And we ought to rest in the fact that there is divine justice. And that divine justice is coming. It will come. He says, verse 12 and 13, Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may prolong his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the wicked man, and he will not prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God openly. Those who fear God will fare well. Those who fear God will fare well, but the wicked will not get away with wickedness. They may seem like they will in this life, but ultimately, they will not. He will bring every act into judgment. He will judge every careless word. Just real quick, you can turn to 2 Peter 3. And this is, in a sense, almost the hope that Peter gives his readers who are going through persecution. That there is a divine retribution. 2 Peter 3 is... Peter tells them how they are to suffer well in a, in a way which honors God, which is Christ-like. He says this, he says, this, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles, knowing this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being deluged with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, 
being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some consider slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is exercising his divine, perfect patience and his mercy, allowing the wicked time to repent. But there will be a time when that time runs out and they will be judged and his judgment is sure. So we are not to be frustrated with the failures of human justice. We are to rest in the fact of divine justice, that there is divine justice. But we're also to reflect on the fact that we are sinners as well, and we deserve that justice. But God is merciful and gracious and allows us a way to avoid that justice through Jesus Christ. Solomon's fifth theme that he... Um, considers wisdom is, is, is wisdom and consequences. Wisdom and consequences. Verses 14 to 15, there is a vanity which is done on the earth, that is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the works of, wicked, of the wicked. On the other hand, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the works of the righteous. I say that this too is vanity. So I laud gladness, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will join with him in his labor throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. Solomon comments on wisdom and consequences, or wisdom and retribution. Um, you know, throughout the Old Testament, the ancient Near East, there was this concept of the retribution principle um, that you reap what you sow and generally speaking that does happen but sometimes it doesn't and this was uh, the conundrum between Job and his friends and his friends saying Joe you must have done something evil you're, you're, you're getting retribution you're getting your just desserts you're getting what you deserve Job was saying, no, I'm blameless and I don't know why. And sometimes that's the case. Sometimes the wicked prosper. Sometimes the righteous suffer. There's the inequities, inequities of a sin-cursed world. Why do the wicked prosper? And there's a sense that there will always be in the world Job's. There will be Joseph's, Joseph's like Joseph in Egypt. There will be Naboth's, Naboth's vineyard, Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel just, okay, I'll take care of it. You want his vineyard? I'll take care of it. And she did. And then there's Jesus, who didn't deserve any of the evil that he faced. We live in a sin-cursed world. It's broken. And sometimes, in fact, more often than not, Things don't go the way they should. And then there's the uh, inevitabilities of life. We, we see the inequities of a sin-cursed world, and then the inevitabilities of life. Verse 15, Solomon concludes, So I log gladness, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will join with him in his labor throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. Solomon, in a sense, is saying, you know, things don't work out the way they should. The world is broken. It's sin-cursed. I, I can't really give you an explanation. It's not fair. So enjoy yourself when you can. When things are going well, enjoy yourself. You're, you're going to die. You will die. In, in this world, you will have trouble, as Jesus said. And you don't know when or how that's going to happen. You don't know when or how you're going to die, and you don't know when or how you're going to have trouble. So the conclusion, enjoy the good things God has given. Enjoy the good things and the good times that God has given you, and trust him through the bad, that he has a reason for it. He has a purpose behind it all. This is what Job said to his wife when she, um, the final 
the final affliction when, when Satan uh, uh, struck his flesh. And his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the wickedly foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept calamity? Shall we accept good from God and not evil? He brings rain on the just and the unjust alike. And sometimes we don't know why. But when things are good, we rejoice, we enjoy them. We enjoy life as much as possible because we don't know when it will end, how it will end. We don't know if trouble's coming around the corner. And we shouldn't be suspicious either. We just enjoy life. We're to rejoice always. Again, I said rejoice is what Paul tells the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4. Solomon's last theme in this chapter is wisdom and the creator. Wisdom and the creator. Verse 16 and 17. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the endeavor which has been done on the earth, even though one never sees sleep with his eyes day or night, and I saw every work of God, I conclude that man cannot find out the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not find it out. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot find it out. In a sense, uh, Solomon, he, he, he's answering the question almost he poses at the beginning. Who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter? I mean, wise men, they do know some things and they can figure out some things, but there's many things they don't know. Many things they can't figure out. Many things that are beyond their scope and their understanding because they're a creature. There's things that are too lofty for us, too high for us. We don't know God's purposes in many things. And so Solomon gives us two lessons concerning wisdom and the Creator. First, look around, see, and consider. Look around, see, and consider. Verse 16, when I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the endeavor which has been done on the earth. He's just looking around, observing, considering. He comes to the conclusion, you cannot find the answer to everything, nor the reason for it. And so we, you know, sometimes have heard this saying, I, I've said it many times, it is what it is. It is what it is. It's just the way it is. I'm sorry. You just have to deal with it. And sometimes that's true in life. You just have to deal with it. You're not going to have all the answers. But at the same time, this doesn't give you an excuse to, uh, to fatalism or apathy or selfishness or disobedience. We're to fear God and keep his commandments. The second lesson is look up, submit, and content yourself. We are creatures who are accountable to our creator. We're accountable to our creator. And we don't, we don't have all the answers. We're not going to have all the answers. He's not going to give us all the answers. His ways are higher than our ways. It says, I saw every work of God. I conclude that man cannot find out the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not find it out. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot find it out. This is, in a sense, uh, at the end of Job. When God confronts him, he says, who are you? Who are you to question me? Where were you when I created the world? Do you know? And it's just like a whole, you know, I believe it's three chapters. He's just, he's just you know, confronting Job. And all throughout, he tells, you know, it says that Job was righteous. He was blameless. God loved Job. But at the same time, Job, he was out of line. He was out of order. It's not for you to understand, Job. I'm doing something that is far beyond your understanding. And it's not for you. All you do is obey. Shut up and obey and trust. Obedience and wisdom are still commended and good, though they can't ensure a good life. This is his conclusion. 
It's always good to trust and obey. Trust and obey. We hear God says it through Isaiah. Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. He's talking about that in the context of, of the nation of Israel, in the context of their discipline and their judgment, and yet also explaining that he will remain faithful to his promises to Israel. He will remain faithful to preserve a remnant. He will uh, save his people from their sins. And even, you know, uh, Paul, kind of along the same lines of his exclamation in, in, in the, uh, Romans chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be repaid to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul writes that in the context of the gospel and Israel and and his plans for his people, for the church, for Israel, and, and who he's going to save, and who he's going to judge, and who he's going to damn. And it's, it's beyond our understanding. This is in God's mind. And it gets back to Solomon's conclusion at the end of Ecclesiastes. As he goes through all this, it's the same conclusion over and over again. The end of the matter, all that has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. Because this is the end of the matter for all mankind. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Heavenly Father, too often we complain. We grumble. We get frustrated. We um, muse and reflect upon things which are too lofty for us to understand. Or, or we, we just throw up our hands in, in, uh, in apathy and just give up. Lord, help us to navigate life in a way which is wise, which is discerning, which honors you. Help us to know our place and to honor you as your creatures and your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.